we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 4 today. This is the third in a series of messages on the Lockwood vision statement, which is committed to Christ, to Christ-likeness, to each other, to the world. Uh, sometime last year, Karen and I got some, some side tables to go next to our bed, and they were uh, made out of particle board, and they had a, have, have a cherry veneer. And so we bought them in a box, and I opened and emptied the box, and I began to read the instructions, written, I think, by someone who was Japanese, writing in Korean, and then translating through Google Translate into English. And there were drawings, but you kind of had to stand on your head to get them in the right perspective. And, and I got tired of that pretty soon, so I set the instructions aside, and I thought, you know, I'm a smart guy. I can figure this out. And I did a pretty good job, except for one thing. I didn't put it together in the right order. Some things have to be done in the right order. So I ended up putting the legs and the top together before attaching the cross piece. But once the top was on, the cross piece wouldn't fit between the table legs. So I did what a guy does. I tried to force it. And, uh, you know, I got it in there. But on the day we moved into the new house, after people had loaded everything up and brought it over, I walked into my bedroom, and there was that cross piece laying on the floor in front of the table. Yeah, I know you've had that kind of experience, whether making a, a recipe or a quilt or putting your kid's bicycle together as a Christmas present. Some things have to be done in the right order. Two of my best friends worked on a college project, a biology project together, and they were supposed to assemble the various bones of a rhesus monkey that came in a box. They were supposed to assemble it back into a skeleton. And on the night before the project was due, they showed it to me, and I laughed until I cried. It, Apparently, they didn't get the order right. So here was this little monkey. He was standing erect with his back and arched at a very improbable angle and his hands reaching up to the sky like that. I called him the hallelujah monkey. <laughs> and for a, a while, he was like our dorm mascot on our floor. You got to do some things in the right order. That is never truer than when it comes to the Lockwood vision, which is committed to Christ to Christ-likeness, to each other, and to the world. If you get the order wrong, things will fall apart, like my side table at home, or they'll not work like the bicycle in which the chain guards put on before the chain, or it'll just be laughable like the hallelujah monkey. Commitment to Christ comes first for us. Everything else flows out of that. Committing to Christ-likeness before connecting to Christ is like trying to water your garden before you hook the hose up to the spigot. You can go through the motions, but the garden isn't going to produce much. Same kind of thing happens when church people commit to each other with good intentions without first committing to Christ-likeness. Becoming like Christ. So think about what that means. Compassionate, prayerful, Honest, courageous, confident, trustworthy, non-condemning, welcoming. Commitment to Christ is the framework upon which a lasting commitment to other people is built. And the framework of Christ's likeness rests on the foundation of a commitment to Christ himself. 
So the reason I tell you this is that I've seen people try to be good people before they've become Jesus' people. Or they try to be good church members when they haven't made any significant commitment to becoming like Christ. Some things have to be done in the right order, and this is one of them. So let me just say this now. If you've never committed yourself, and remember, that means if you've never entrusted your life, your real life, to Jesus as his follower, that's where you need to start. Trying to be a good church member in relation to other church members before you've connected to Jesus is like trying to water that garden when the hose hasn't been hooked up to the spigot. If you stick with it at all, there's going to be a lot of pretending going on, and you're not going to be satisfied. You need to connect yourself to Jesus, to his death and his powerful resurrection life first. And that can only happen as you trust him and entrust yourself to him. But let's say you have done that. You've committed yourself to Christ. You've entrusted him with your time, with your future, with your obedience. You've committed to Christ. And let's say further, you've committed yourself to Christ-likeness. Not everybody does that. But you have. You've realized that you were designed on the Jesus blueprint, and your life isn't going to work right as long as you're living it as if it were based on some other blueprint, like the American Dream blueprint. You've gotten past the feeling that being like Jesus is a burden and have begun to see it for what it really is, a joyful, peaceful, and very desirable way to live. So you've committed to being like Jesus, compassionate, prayerful, honest, courageous, confident, trustworthy, non-condemning, welcoming, always open to the Father. The next commitment And remember, that requires you to commit something that belongs to you, time, thought, energy, resources, to someone else. That's what a commitment is. It's a commitment to the church family, to one another. If you're committed to Christ in any meaningful sense and committed to Christ-likeness, a commitment to each other is going to naturally follow. And here's what's so cool about that. Your commitment to each other will energize and reinforce your commitment to Christ-likeness. Nothing motivates you or helps you be like Jesus more than a thoroughgoing commitment to his other followers. It's kind of like this. It takes the car battery to start the car, right? You take the battery out of the car, your car won't start. It takes a car battery to start the car, which runs the alternator, which charges the battery, which starts the car, which runs the alternator, which starts the battery, which, you know, you get the picture. The same kind of thing happens in a commitment to Christ, to Christ-likeness, and to each other. And that's the way God designed it. He is so smart. The Bible addresses our commitment to each other in a variety of ways. A huge amount of the New Testament and the Old Testament is given to this. And it gives us very specific instructions on how we ought to relate to each other. Uh, just a few examples were to love one another, be at peace with one another, give preference to one another, build up one another, accept one another, admonish one another, refuse to judge one another. The Bible provides dozens of concrete ways for us to live in relation to each, to each other. But following those biblical instructions in our relationships are gonna, is going to seem impractical, even impossible, if we are not becoming more like Jesus. It's the commitment to Christ-likeness that makes the commitment to each other work. 
So one of the many texts that deals with our relationships is in Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read for us verses 25 through verse 32. So would you follow along? Verse 25, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin. That, by the way, is a direct quote, Psalm 4, verse 4. In your anger do not sin. By the way, I'm going to stop there for just a second. Just a little note for when you're reading the New Testament. And you're reading St. Paul, and you see he's quoting someplace in the Old Testament. Read the verse that he's quoting, but go back and read the whole passage. Because when he quotes that verse, he has the whole passage in mind. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful or helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. How do people committed to each other live together? In this passage, Paul shows us five ways that we ought to be relating to each other. They are radically countercultural but they are part of the Christ culture of the church. Each of these five instructions includes a negative command, don't do something, a positive command, do do something, and an explanation. Here's why you ought to do it this way. It's worth noting that these instructions follow on a commitment to Christ-likeness. Remember the very first word, verse 25, therefore, which harks back to verse 24, which culminates with the words, Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, the commitment to Christ-likeness proceeds and it leads into this commitment to each other. The first of those five instructions, verse 25, is negatively put off falsehood and positively speak truthfully. Truth is to relationships what blood is to the body. A relationship cannot be healthy unless truth is circulating through it. The relationship, whether it's a marriage relationship or a parent-child relationship or a, a relationship between people in the church, will get sick and begin to die without truth. That body illustration is an apt one. Paul himself uses it in his explanation of why we must speak truthfully to each other because we are all members like hands and feet and fingers and toes and eyes and ears, we're all members of one body. When we're untruthful with each other, we're hurting ourselves. And do you see why? Because when you were joined to Christ by faith, you were at the same time joined to all the rest of us. You don't get Christ without his body. We're connected. You can no more lie to me without it affecting you than you can hit your thumb with a hammer and not suffer the consequences. 
but how hard it is for us to be truthful to others when we're not even truthful to ourselves, which is another reason why the commitment to Christ-likeness comes first. God expects us to be truthful with each other. There's a countercultural idea. That's a commitment that each of us ought to make this morning. I'm going to be truthful. I'm going to be truthful with the rest of Christ's body. Every great work of God throughout the history of the church has involved a renewal of honesty on the part of believers. You know what? Being truthful can be scary. It leaves us vulnerable. When we're being truthful, we're entrusting something of ourselves, our well-being, to someone else. And for many people, that's extremely difficult. I know people who are plagued by a spirit of dishonesty, not just with other people, but with themselves. How hard it is for them and how hard they make it for the church. The church can't be healthy when we speak defensively to each other, when we speak rudely to each other, or when we speak deceptively to each other. We can only be healthy when we speak truthfully to each other. When, as verse 15 has it, we speak the truth in love. That's the first instruction. Put away falsehood, speak truth. Because you're members of one another. Second instruction. Be angry. That's a literal translation. And it's the positive side of this command. You don't see that in the translation in your anger. But that's literal. Be angry positive, and do not sin. That's the negative side. Paul knew that we will sometimes be angry, even in the church. Anger in itself is not a sin. It's a response. It's not a sin, but it is a danger. When I'm angry, I am much more vulnerable to sin than when I'm happy. Being happy is good for you. When I'm angry, I'm vulnerable. Anger is unhealthy for the soul, and it's dangerous to relationships. And so Paul instructs the Christ follower not to let the sun go down on his anger. You're going to get angry, but don't let the sun go down on your anger. If today is the day of conflict, it's also the day for reconciliation. Don't just put it off and say, eh, well, that's been a difficult instruction for me to follow over the years. With my wife, with other Christians, see, I'd rather avoid conflict altogether But failing that, I intend to win the conflict. To dismiss the anger when the disagreement hasn't been solved feels like losing. If I give up my anger, how can I expect that the difficulty will ever be resolved? But I can expect the difficulty to be resolved because Christ is involved. If I'll stop trying to control everything and dare to be truthful. If I'll stop trying to win and trust Christ to work all things together for good, then I can let go of anger without letting go of what's good and right. And so in our relationship with each other, we're committed to speaking, we must be committed to speaking truth and laying aside anger. Truth is the circulation system in a relationship. Anger is like a clot. When anger is present, truth either stops flowing or it bursts out like a stroke and causes damage, sometimes catastrophic damage. Just like in the first set of directions, Paul gives us a reason for this instruction. 
If we don't deal with anger, we will give the devil a place from which to attack us. When we're angry, we're vulnerable, and the devil will take advantage of our vulnerability. Anger is an invitation to the devil to come and play. We don't usually realize that when we're angry, do we? The third set of instructions is found in verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Later commentators have really been puzzled. Paul's writing to the church and telling them not to steal. They were stealing. When Paul was writing, many Christians were slaves. Others were day laborers. Day laborers got up early in the morning. They went to their version of a union hall, and they waited for some farmer to hire them. Slaves had a much more secure life than day laborers did. That's why so many people were in slavery. They sold themselves into slavery. If a day laborer didn't get hired for a few days, he was in big trouble. If he had a family to feed, it was worse. And so some people, including Christians, had for years been in the habit of stealing in order to feed their families. When Paul tells them to stop stealing, he knows this isn't just a moral issue. It's a faith issue. They'll have to trust God to provide for them. So we have the negative command, stop stealing. The positive command, work with your own hands. And again, a reason. So that you can have something to share with those in need. He's not saying work hard so that you can get ahead. Work hard so that you can outdo your neighbor. Not even work hard so that you can set something aside for a rainy day, but work hard so that you can share. Lots of ancient moralists said don't steal. Only the Christian said, work hard so that you'll have something to give to other people when they're in trouble. So do we go to work so that we can have something to share with others? Do we say, oh boy, the government's going to take a lot of money out of my check this week to help poor people? That is such a radical, countercultural idea. It was then, and it is now. But see, Paul knew that the Christian cannot live an isolated, me-first life and ever hope to be happy. He or she is not designed that way. In the matrix of the church, we are members one of another. We belong to each other. If we live as though that weren't true, we're going to miss out on authentic Christianity. There's no authentic Christianity outside the church. We can only experience what belonging to Christ truly means when we live as though we belong to each other. That is, as we live in the light of reality. All right, fourth set of instructions. They come in verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Once again, the negative command comes first. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. So what did he mean by unwholesome talk? Profanity, deceit, Exaggeration, gossip, condemnation, insult. Well, we don't do those things, do we? Here's what I want you to do. Ask your spouse or your best friend. Do I gossip? Do I judge people? 
Do I talk about them as though they deserve to be rejected? Do I say things that you and I both know that I shouldn't? You may be surprised by the habits that are embedded in the way that you talk. Let me rephrase that. You will be surprised. The positive instruction is to use words that build others up. The negative instruction, don't let anything unwholesome come out. Positive instruction, use words that build others up. Will my words make you stronger? Will they encourage you in the task, fortify your resolve? Words that build people up are not always nice words. They can be soft or loud, consoling or admonishing, subtle or blunt. The one thing they have in common is that they are spoken in love. The church, verse 16, builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Once again, there's a reason for this instruction, that it may benefit those who listen. Benefit translates two words that simply mean give grace. That your words may give grace to those who listen. The word grace is one of the biggest words in the Bible. I mean, it's one of the most difficult words to get a handle on. It suggests kindness, forgiveness, generosity, joy. It's often translated joy, gift, even charm. God's grace is his charming kindness that gives forgiveness, which then brings joy. Grace describes the attitudes and actions of God in making you everything you could ever hope to be. And that's what God wants our words to be. He wants them to be helpful to people, to become everything he intends them to be. Now, the way this section of the letter is written, verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit, coordinates with the command to avoid unwholesome speech. As so often happens in the Bible, look, look for it. The Holy Spirit is mentioned in a passage that deals with the way we talk. In this case, with the unwholesome speech that grieves God. In the Bible, the Holy Spirit is particularly concerned with how people speak. So look, if you say, well, I'm not really sure that I have the Holy Spirit. I'm not aware of the Holy Spirit's presence in my life. The first thing, no, the first thing to do is check and see if you're connected to Jesus. The second thing to do is to look at what kind of speech is coming out of your mouth. Particularly in regards to other believers. Final set of instructions come in verses 31 and 32. And it follows the pattern with which we're now familiar. A negative command, positive command, a reason to follow the instruction. Negative command, verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. These are things that enter our lives when we let the sun go down on our anger day after day. And these things are ugly. You know what it is to have something really bitter on your tongue? You know, when your face almost turns inside out, That's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. Only the bitterness is in our souls. It is a constant offense, a bad taste in our souls that won't go away. When bitterness is present, one often finds rage, which is an explosive, fly-off-the-handle kind of anger that leaves a path of destruction. That's why when people try to deal with their anger, haven't dealt with their bitterness, it never works. The anger mentioned in this verse is a deep, settled, ongoing sense of displeasure or hostility. Paul wants us to know that it's okay to be angry, but it's not okay to live angry. 
Brawling and slander, they're repulsive things. They also happen to be the two staples of contemporary political discourse. Brawling has the idea of shouting over the top of your opponent. It's not fisticuffs here, it's with your mouth. And slander, that's the same word that's translated elsewhere as blasphemy. Slander often takes the form of attributing evil motives to a person. Oh, he doesn't really care about the kids. He's only seeing them because he doesn't want her to get custody. See, that's slander. Impugning another person, attributing motives to that person that are evil. Paul tells us to take these things right out of our lives. Because they're not like Christ. They're not like the people that we're designed to be. And we must be vigilant because these things sneak in without us realizing it. And because of that, we who are committed to Christ and to Christ-likeness must help each other. We must be committed to each other to speak truth to each other. To help each other be the best people we can be. If we're going to take our commitment to Christ-likeness seriously, we're going to have to take our relationships with each other seriously. Because it is in those relationships that Christ-likeness gets worked out. It doesn't happen in your prayer closet. Or at least it doesn't happen there alone. Now the positive side of this instruction is to be kind to each other. That is to be easy, not hard on each other. Easy to live with. And compassionate. A person who's compassionate doesn't keep his feelings of concern bottled up. He lets them out. He acts on them. Now, that's really hard for us in 21st century America because we have a thousand voices competing for our attention every day. We don't stop for 10 seconds to think about the needs of a fellow Christ follower or the pain that she's suffering. Compassion takes time. It takes thought, and it takes silence. Three things that are conspicuously absent from most of our lives. In addition to kindness and compassion, Paul urges us to be gracious to each other. The word that's translated forgiving is the verb form of the word grace, the one that appeared back in verse 29. And forgiveness is an aspect of grace. But acting graciously involves more than forgiveness. Acting graciously is the opposite of bitterness, rage, and anger. When we act graciously toward a person, we are mimicking the way God acts towards us. As before, Paul gives a reason. Here's the reason. Because in Christ, God forgave. Literally, he acted graciously toward you. When you act graciously, you give. So you give the benefit of the doubt. You give another chance. You give understanding, you give time and space, you give interest and concern. That's how we're supposed to relate to each other. And that's what I long for Lockwood to be like. Committed to each other. Expressing that commitment by relating in these ways. Now we have a good start on that. But we've got further to go. As I mentioned earlier, this is the year we want to work on creating a culture of caring. We want caring to be our way of life at Lockwood. Some of that's organizational, but even more it's spiritual. The culture of caring comes out of a commitment to Christ and a commitment to Christ-likeness, which issues in a commitment to each other. When those things are in place, a culture of caring will be evident. So what can you do? 
First, you can pray. You can pray for God to lead us in specific, practical ways to cultivate that culture of care. Come to the prayer meetings that I mentioned to you that are listed in the bulletin on Tuesday and Thursday. You can also volunteer. I'm looking for people to serve in a work group that will propose a plan of action for a culture of caring at Lockwood. You can talk with family and LCC friends about what can be done to make that happen. And you can make a commitment, which you'll remember means you commit something of yourself, your money, your thought, perhaps an evening a week, to caring for each other. But the most immediate and practical thing you can do is examine your life in the light of the Apostle Paul's instructions we've just been looking at. Is there deception in your relationships? It must be replaced with truth-speaking. Is there anger that's gone unresolved? If there is, you've put up a vacancy sign and made a room up for the devil. If anger has separated you from some fellow Christian... Take care of it. Go to God first, but then go to that person with whom you're angry. Have you been using other people? That has to be replaced with giving to other people. Are you talking in ways you wouldn't talk if I were in your home or at your workplace? Using profanity, condemning others, impugning their motives. And if you wouldn't talk that way around me, you certainly wouldn't do it around Jesus, and yet he's with you all the time. Don't grieve his good spirit. Is your soul bitter? Are you angry angry and combative towards others? Replace that with kindness, compassion, and grace. Do some soul searching over this passage. Ask God to tell you if you need to make changes regarding the things that we've just looked at. And when he does, make them. Now's the time for us to commit. To commit to each other. All right, let's pray. Lord, I pray for myself and for my friends that the things we've just been talking about where we are off the blueprint, when we're not living in a Christ-like way with each other, would you show us? And not just show us, would you help us? And would you give us some other people to help us too? I pray, Lord, that our community here, Lockwood Community, church might be a model of what it looks like to be committed to each other I ask for this in your son's name Jesus